You're listening to Halford and Bruff. Backpedaling is Whit Merrifield, and he'll make the catch, and the Blue Jays will win it. Jordan Hicks gets the last out. Kevin Gosman of the bullpen do a great job. The outfielders celebrate. The Springer home run way back in the first stands up as the only run of the ball game tonight. Being here in front of a crowd, in front of a great crowd, is uh, really special. It's easy to be home. It's fun to be home. Rojas sprinting it. He's under it. He has space. Makes the catch. And Michael Lorenzen has thrown the 14th no-hitter in Philadelphia Phillies history. Good morning. What's going on? Welcome to another show of Halford and Bruff here, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My guy Randy Jandy here as well, filling in for Halford and Bruff. We got A-Dog. We got producer Elon now. We've made the shift change from producer Ben to producer Elon uh, running the show behind the glass. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Randeep, um, you going to get through the show? Ooh. I, I don't that know. That was exciting. Uh, been cut off. I'm played off the, uh, by the show already, and I, I didn't even say a word. I don't know if I'm going to make the show. I am uh, a continuation of what we yes. talked about a couple of days ago. I bought the tickets. I got up at 1 a.m. this morning. Success, I will be going to AC Milan wow. versus Bologna. Congratulations. However, I didn't get much sleep last night. <laughs> I think I'm working on like three hours of sleep. Oh, boy. So we got a great show planned. I just don't know how much of I'm gonna, uh, how much I'm going to be able to take part in it. So this might be a lot of Jamie today. <laughs> it might well, be a liability. Oh, boy. I might. I, well, I don't like the I sound of that. I won't be back checking. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to. There might be some Kuzmenko shifts. <laughs> Um, but you got the tickets. Congratulations. Got the tickets. G- happy with the seats and everything? Oh, yeah. They're like, I I didn't want to mess around. I got primo seats. So. There you go. So it's Milan and Bologna, you said? Bologna, yes. Uh, yeah, Milan and Bologna. Bologna. Wow, so I channeled my inner uh, Dan Riccio. I was going to say, all those years working with Reach. I know. It's... You're an honorary Italian there. Pretty much. Uh, we do have a big show coming up, and there's a, a schedule change from normal. So I want everyone to listen very closely, because I know this is going to be controversial. At 7... Mike Morreale, he's the commissioner of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. He's going to join us. Uh, that league has their championship weekend happening at the LEC, of course, involving the local team, the Vancouver Bandits. Uh, but the semifinals and the finals happening this weekend at the LEC. So we'll talk to Mike about that and the league and the growth, uh, the growth of the league in general. At 7.30, 7.30, we're going to do what we learned. That's an hour earlier than normal. That also means... At 7.30, we will play the What We Learn jingle. So if you have strong feelings, maybe you love it and you don't want to miss it, make sure you tune in at 7.30. Or the other way. Or don't be, be warned. I'm going to say maybe you've never heard it because you're always busy later on That's in the show. That's a great point. And you're wondering what the hype is. And maybe you're on your way to work at Here, 7.30. Here's your chance. Here's your chance. So 
again, I want to make this perfectly clear. I don't want anybody to say that I'm that they're surprised by this when it happens later. What we learned is happening at 7.30. So that means also you have less time to get your submissions in. We need you to get on that right now and start filling up that inbox with, uh, with your What We Learned submissions. You should not be surprised by the timing. You should definitely be surprised by the jingle, though. <laughs> I've heard it a few times, and I'm always, always surprised. Always remain surprised by the jingle. Every single time. It's a piece of work. My wife has been listening with uh, with our kids in the morning, and she's like, I can't get that song out of my head. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay. Andy, I have to admit, the Faber mm. song, I am humming to myself like on a random Thursday, just walking down the street. So you're to blame. Okay. You're to blame. Sweet. That's so how many, it's a catchy song, man. Who, who, are, the, who are the guests with songs? Uh, Faber. Faber. Drance. Drance, Cervelli, uh, Shorty, although he's obviously doesn't come on often. Yes, that one rarely uh, makes it out rarely, of the vault. Yeah. had it a few times. Cervelli, uh, Drance, Shorty, uh, Batch. Batch has one. Oh, does he? Batch, okay. Batch right. does have one. Hmm. And uh, I'm missing someone. Maybe we need to get uh, Batch on the show just to hear it. I do like Cervelli's. I enjoy Cervelli's a lot. Anyways. I, I haven't heard from Batch in months. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Batch does less work than you do in the summer. Exactly. (laughs) Works hard during the season, though. We both do. Uh, All right. So that's 7.30, what we learned. At 8 o'clock, my regular co-host on Canucks Talk when it's running, Thomas Drance, also uh, at The Athletic. He'll join us. uh, Had an interesting piece about expectations for the Canucks next year up at The Athletic. We'll talk to him about that. And then at 8.30, the reason for the switch. Uh, We're accommodating our guest, Ian Furness from Seattle from KJR Radio, uh, he's going to join us to talk a little bit about the Seahawks. They play their first preseason game tonight. And we'll probably touch up, uh, Ian, on uh, the Mariners and the Kraken as well, since uh, he covers it all down there in Seattle. Before we get to all of that, let's start with what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. Oh, what happened? I missed all the action because I was... We know how busy your life can be. What happened? Missed that? You missed that? All right, we will start with, again, the National Bank Open. And after, I would say, probably a, a pretty mixed bag in the first round with a couple of big wins but some disappointing results as well for the Canadians, now that the the field of Canadians has been narrowed down, last night was fantastic. Two really big wins. Uh, we'll start with Milos Raonic, who, I mean, if you I think if you had told people he was going to get the first victory against a really good opponent in Tiafo. Uh, at this event, they would have been over the moon. He comes out and he does it again in straight sets in pretty convincing fashion. Has the serve working, uh, picks up a ton of aces. Now he's into the round of 16. And, you know, even he said yesterday after the match, the, it's always been about the fitness and the health for Raonich, right? Not not the ability, not the the level he's capable of reaching. It's been about that. And even he said... You know, playing back-to-back matches, yeah, there was a day off in between, but playing two matches in in relatively quick succession after how long he's been out, how little he's played, he was worried about how his body would hold up, what level he'd be able to reach, and no problems. Really, no problems for him. Now, the question for me is, now that the schedule picks up, you don't have that day off, how is his body going to react to that? But a great moment for Milos Raonic to build on that initial win and and pick up another one last night. And that first match was about just the upset, right? You're yeah. beating a top 10 player in the world. And having not played the last two years, that was huge. And a bit of um, adrenaline there, too, I imagine, playing you know 10 minutes away from his home. The second one, just the body holding up. 
the player is not the same. Taro Daniel is not, you know, Francis Tiafo. But at the same time, you don't have to be, you know, playing that same level player to lose a match. We've seen no. that all the time. You lose to qualifiers. Mm-hmm. We've seen the body breakdown for Milos Raonic. The fact that he was able to take care of business, there's no let up in his game, is the biggest point here. And the way that this tournament's starting to play out a little bit. There's some upsets, right? Yep. A couple of the big names win, Medvedev and Alcaraz. Alcaraz. But if you start looking across the the rest of the, you know, Rublev's been bounced. Uh, a few others, uh, Zverev's been bounced. So there is an opportunity here to to make a bit of a run if you are Milos Raonic, if your body holds up, and if you can get that serve going. Like the first match against Diapo had 37 aces, has a bunch you know, last night's last match night, yep. too. Uh, if he can keep that going... You know, there's they, there could be a bit of well, a run here. Gotta, if you're serving at that high of a level, you've got a shot, right? You're, sure. you're you're going to be in a position to give your opponent trouble if you have the serve working like that. And again, I, you know, my I, I will say when I saw the result yesterday, my mind's kind of started to wander. Like, can he go on a run here? Can he get to the weekend? Can he get to the the semifinals or the finals or heck, even win it? And again, that would be an incredible moment, right? That would really be a, a kind of an epic career-capping moment for Milos Raonic in Canada. The grind of the matches is is going to be, more so than the quality of the opponents he faces even, the grind of the matches uh, is going to be what to watch here. And you know what, though? I will say, just it's been great to see Raonic play at this level again. He was even talking, you know, hey, maybe the Labor Cup in Vancouver yep. in, in September, right? Is there is there a spot for me there if I'm playing at this level? And if he's able to kind of cap capture this momentum and spin it off into some some appearances elsewhere and some good results down the road. I mean, I think that's fantastic for you know a guy who is such a trailblazer for Canadian tennis uh at this point. And there are two spots left on Team World and on Team Europe as well. So mm-hmm. there's going to be some more names being announced here probably in the next uh month or so, less than a month. Uh but that next matchup is Mackenzie McDonald versus Raonic today at 9:30. So um you know, quality opponent, sure. But not a not a, a world class top one. five. Yeah, yeah. This is a B level talent. The right? twenty four hour turnaround is going to be what to watch big. here, right? That's yep. uh, you know not going not going into the evening or anything. He played early yesterday, playing early today as well. So that's really going to be the uh, I think the storyline to watch for Raonic for the rest of the tournament. On the women's side, uh, Layla Annie Fernandez, an impressive three set win uh, against the eleventh seed in this tournament, uh, Beatrice Haddad Maya. And the good, the impressive thing about this was, you know, we talked about that kind of resilience and dealing with the pressure in particular of playing at home. We talked about that with Carolyn Cameron yesterday. Layla had match point in the second set. She won the first set, had match point. I believe she was trying to break, uh, and she didn't get it, right? And, and her opponent comes in, wins the second set. To have that resilience, be like, man, I had it. I had match point, but I couldn't get it done. And then to come back and win the third set and win the match – that's really impressive against a, a, a much higher ranked, higher seeded opponent. Like that says a lot about where her mental game is right now. The degree of difficulty went up in that match. The first round was great, but the fact that she's playing a, a 11 seeded player and what do the really good players, you know, top 15 in the world do when you give them opportunity, they take advantage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Beatrice Haddad Maya also you know, wins that set. And if you're a young player, if you're 20 years old, you're probably doubting yourself. Everybody does to a certain extent. But she bounces back to your point. There's that resiliency. And something that we could look back at Bianca's match, where she had a bunch of opportunities, probably deserved to beat Camila Giorgi, but couldn't take advantage. Where here, you know, Leila Annie Fernandez takes 
advantage of that and beats a quality opponent. This was a better opponent than in the first round. So I think it's all about confidence right now. It's all about having that tunnel vision, which is something that Layla had at the U.S. Open when she went to the final. And you can't bottle that up. You can't replicate that same run. That was special. But can you do it? in a tournament format. Can you do it in over a, a couple of matches, a couple of tough matches, and build that confidence as you go? I, I think she's, you know, she's kind of peaking right here at, at a good time, right yep. before the U.S. Open. This is a good time to find your form. And yesterday's match was a big win. This is a quality opponent that has gone to, you know, a major final, right? We're not talking about uh, Maya Haddad. No, it's Haddad, not a qualifier. Like, this yeah. is not somebody who is, you know, just run-of-the-mill player. This is a, a player that has played at a high level, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good win for uh, Layla, and then it's great, you know, at this to, at this point of the week to have a Canadian on both sides, in in Montreal and Toronto on the women's side and the men's side is, uh, is great for this tournament, so hopefully they can keep the good performances going. Uh, on the diamond in baseball, you heard part of the call coming in. Uh, Jays turned the tables. They got shut out one nothing on Tuesday by Cleveland. Uh, yesterday, they shut out Cleveland. Just a, an absolute barn burner of a series between uh, these two teams. George Springer, second at-bat of the game, goes yard, and that holds up as the winning run in that series. And, you know, shout out, like, Kevin Gosman's been fantastic. He's been, he's going to be a... Uh, uh, a Cy Young contender. I don't think he's going to win it, but he's going to be on a lot of ballots. And, you know, the Jays' bullpen is is really strong as well. I I can get behind a pitcher's duel. That doesn't feel like a pitcher's duel as much as the Jays still not being able to hit, right? Like, they had the bases loaded. Bases loaded, zero outs, and you can't cash a run. I don't know if that's a pitcher's duel or just ineffective offense from the Blue Jays. Scored four runs in three games and have won two of them. You'll take it. You'll you know, take it if you can get it. But your your point is a good one. It's not like they're playing Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin, right? No. Like these are no. Bybee's a good pitcher. He ain't that good. They're fine. They're good pitchers. Yeah. They're good, you know, Cleveland's doing some right things. But the most important thing is despite having that lifeless offense. And they're I, getting wins. And, and I'm not that's not hyperbole. They're still getting yep. wins. And look, you know, as much as and I know you made the point of, hey, is clutch hitting important in the playoffs? Like, yes, it is. But you know what else is? Really good pitching, sure. right? And and deep pitching that you have not just your starters you can rely on, but you can go to six, seven different guys in the bullpen, which the Jays can right now, and feel pretty good about bringing that uh, bringing that player in. So it is like it, it's very much a, a glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing, right? You can look and say, "Wow, they're pitching so well." But it also makes you want to pull your hair out in frustration, the hitting. But the good thing is that one of those players you need to turn it around is starting to do Springer. That. Springer yeah. is now turning it around. We've seen, obviously, had that terrible, you know, drought where he was not getting any hits. No. But gets that home run yesterday. Obviously, with runners in scoring position, that's the big one. Like, you cannot strand them in the playoffs because as yeah. good as your pitching is, at some you gotta, point... you got to take... Take advantage of your opportunities. Yeah, your big boy's got to stand up, and Vladdy Jr. is g- going to be the key there. Getting Bo Bichette back is going to be important, but the fact that Springer's now getting a little bit more confident, he's got some mojo going, and that's really important for this team because you know whether he's leading off or not, he's a he's an important player for this team, and they paid him a lot of money to be that guy. Well, and the other thing is, from a process standpoint, it was a great at-bat. It was a really, really impressive at bat. He's rewarded with a home run, and it holds up uh, for the Jays to win one nothing in the wild card race. Uh, the Mariners keep pace with the Jays. They beat the Padres seven straight for the Mariners, 
And it was about this time last year where they started to get really, really hot and they ended up breaking uh, that long, long postseason drought. And I, I think the Mariners in some ways have been a little bit similar to the Jays this year where, you know, a lot of expectations for different reasons. And then, you know, Julio Rodriguez doesn't live up to what he would he did last year, much like Vladdy hasn't lived up to expectations. And the team is fine. The team's not terrible by any stretch, but it just feels a little underwhelming. And now all of a sudden, you know, Julio started to get it going a little bit. They've won seven straight. And you start to wonder, can they recapture some of some of that magic and the vibes? And I even saw their manager, Scott Service, starting to use that word, right? Like the vibes are good here. Uh, it feels very similar to how it did down the stretch last season for the Mariners. And we talked about the Blue Jays pitching. The Mariners right now, uh, you know, Emerson Hancock, who made his debut last night, gave him two hits. Pretty good. Uh, they're starting to crank out pitchers at a very, very high number and a lot of quality too. So one of those things, if you can hit, which they put up six runs yesterday, yep. and you get pitching, especially in today's world, like cheap and you're developing it yourself, mm. they're not only a threat now, but in the future as well. You got some, you got some opportunities here because you got those players under control for some time and yet another pitcher working their way through the ranks at the Mariners to say, okay. Maybe you don't have to dip into free agency that often. Maybe you don't have to go after the Robbie Ray types well, that often. And can they, at some point, cash in the pitchers they're developing and go get an impact bat? Right, sure. Because it's yeah. hard to attract free agent bats to Seattle, given how hard the environment is to hit in. Can you... Can you go out and trade for one, right? Because that's always the, the Mariners have always needed more offensive pop in their lineup for a long, long time now, uh, and and maybe you can trade from a position of strength in the off season to address that. Uh, you also heard on the intro to the show, Phillies pitcher Michael Lorenzen throws a no hitter. Came over at the trade deadline, not his debut for the Phillies, but his home debut, first start at home, throws a no hitter in his debut in front of the Philadelphia faithful. And uh, they can be a little tough. So that's a good way to <laughs> ingratiate yourself oh, yeah. with the Philly fans. Although apparently like this is a, this is a wild one. Trey Turner has been really struggling and they like went out of their way to support him and like give him standing ovations. It's like, did somebody put something in the Soft. water in Philadelphia? Soft. That's, not, that's not the Philadelphia. I this know a fan base. That what is used, happening? They used to grease the poles for this fan base. Have we forgotten that? It worked, though. Trey Turner got some big hits for them, but they it's just so out of character for Philadelphia. They booed Santa Claus. They did. I remember Michael Irvin once was being stretchered off, and they're, like, booing him. Booing him. Like, this is the most ruthless fan base in all sports. And now, all of a sudden, you're going through a slump, and they've got your back. I, okay, I love Maybe the they've grown. Maybe they've grown as a fan base. It could have been the Super Bowl win. That's right? a good point. Yeah. Recent success. Yep. Everybody's kind of feeling nice and warm inside. They're yep. not angry, and they're not full of vitriol like they usually are. That's been moved on to Vancouver fans. <laughs> yeah, we wear that crowd now. Proudly. Uh, on the uh, on the basketball court, so we, we've been talking about the FIBA World Cup coming up. Canada plays, not their first game at that tournament. That's still a few weeks away. But they, they're, uh, they're kind of making their way around the world a little bit on an exhibition tour. First stop in Europe. Uh, they played their first tune-up game against Germany yesterday. They lose 86-81, and that... That flatters them a little bit because they were down big early after the first quarter and kind of chipped away, but never were really in the game after that. Look, I can think of a bunch of reasons to kind of give Canada a pass for this. Most notably, you're traveling to Europe. That's a big time change, a big time difference. You're gonna, it's going to take you some time to get acclimated. It's your first 
Like, there's a reason they're going early, right? There's, and then eventually they'll travel to, uh, uh, I believe it's Indonesia, where the where the FIBA World Cup actually is. There's a reason they're doing it early, right? To give themselves times to adjust. And it's not as if there's no NBA talent on Germany. Having said that, and I can come up with all those reasons, and that's they're probably fair. It's one game, it's exhibition, they don't have Jamal Murray, et cetera, et cetera. At a certain point, all of the talk of, hey, even without Murray, this is still a really good team, we still have a shot to medal, they have to put their money where their mouth is. Like, we've heard this so many times before, and then it's a team with one or two NBA players getting the job done when you have six, seven, eight in your lineup. And again, I'm not saying that this means they're going to flame out of the World Cup or anything like that. There's so much time to right the ship and get get things going. It's just frustrating if, when it feels like you're watching the same thing unfold that you have over and over with the program. Yeah, with that, I look at the first quarter, 27 to 14. That strikes me as a team that just got off the plane probably not too long ago and was very sluggish, probably a little fatigued yep. with the travel, and they're playing the home team, the team that's been there the whole time. They haven't gone anywhere, and they're not ready to go yet. I think that's right? a huge part of it, right? The yeah. travel and everything. But the expectation, yeah. it, it's real. Like It's kind of like men's Canadian soccer, where very different, but mm-hmm. Alfonso Davies goes to Europe, plays with one of the best clubs in the world. You have Jonathan David doing his thing. Kyle Lahren having a, a renaissance and playing in some of the best leagues in, in Europe as well, or mm-hmm. competitive leagues anyways in Europe. And then you have all these other other players that are coming up. The men's basketball team is kind of in the same place. You've got some really high-quality players, and even the depth is playing at a very high level now. Yeah. So, yes, there's going to be expectation. The New Zealand game on Saturday, New Zealand is not as strong as an opponent, but that's one where you look at and say, okay, you've had a couple of days to chill out. You've had a couple of days to get maybe a practice or two in. You know, you're used to the time zone. That's the one that I want to see them, like, dominate that. That's the one that you say, yeah. okay, that that's the one you judge, not necessarily this one, based on the fact that they're walking in, playing a team that, is playing in their backyard. They haven't moved anywhere. They, yeah. they probably went down the road, honestly. I do think it's a good comparison to the men's team where the talent is there that expectations have been raised. Very fairly, right? The talent is there to win, to be competitive at events like this. But eventually, you have to see the results, right? You can't keep falling down against less talented opponents. And yeah, the, uh, again, I'm willing to chalk this up to the travel, but it just you know, makes me a little nervous. The other question is, when will we see Jamal Murray? Because the reporting, and the, Michael Grange at Sportsnet had a good piece up about this, you know, Jamal Murray playing things very conservatively because obviously he played late into the summer with the uh, the champion Nuggets, and he wants to make sure he's ready for the upcoming NBA season. So there's some, they're, they're, they're not being open with, when he will play in these exhibition games. The messaging has been, oh, he's definitely going to play at the tournament. We're just going to be very careful about it. But then they've also said, well, if if nobody, if if somebody doesn't play the exhibition games, then they can't play in the tournament. And we're not sure if Jamal Murray's going to play in the exhibition games. So it's been a little confusing. It might be the kind of thing where the last exhibition game is when he gets in and it's kind of a token appearance even, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and then he tries to hit the ground running at the tournament. But that's the big question. Like that, yes, they have talent without Jamal Murray, but if they have healthy, ready-to-go Jamal Murray in their backcourt, they should be looked at as one of the favorites in this tournament. They have talent, but Jamal Murray is like game-changing, game-breaking talent, right? How many of those guys do they have? They have two. Yeah. It's Jamal and it's Shea. Yep. 
And I like R.J. Barrett. He's a Nick. I'm a Nick fan. But he's, he's a role player on this he, team. He's a number three on a on a good team. Yeah. And and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a role to play there. But you're talking about when you're game-changing talents. You need them. The guys you want with the ball in their hands late. There's exa- there's two of them. That, and that you have confidence they can create. They can break down a defender. That's Jamal Murray and it's Shea Gilgis-Alexander. If you, if you cut that down to one, you're putting a huge load on, on Shea's shoulders. On top of that. Who's capable of going on a run? Like, if you are down 10 or 12 in right. a game. It, Who can get hot? Jamal Murray's that yes. guy across the NBA. Forget Team is. Canada. He's one of the premier guys in the NBA, right? And that's something that's very real in this World Championship and the World Cup because other teams have guys that can go off. Especially, we know about, you know, the European teams that mm-hmm. they have two things working for them. They have NBA-quality players, but a lot of these teams play together for years. There's a chemistry there yep. that... North American teams can't and, replicate. And frankly, like <laughs> the European leagues in in basketball are good. You if you're a good European league player, like that's nothing to be sniffed at. That that mean that counts for a lot. So you can look at it and say, oh, Germany has two NBA players, but if you if they have guys who are playing at a high level in the Euro League, like that that counts for something as well. And the I think Spanish and Turkish that. leagues are, are really high quality. Yeah. And even Wembenyama was like, hey, you know what? Europe compared to the preseason. Uh, Europe's quality is a little tougher to play. Yeah, I'm absolutely. sure when the regular season when the regular comes season around, starts, he'll say it's a little different. different. Yeah. It's a little different, but he was kind of throwing a little shade at the NBA after a couple of games. It always cracks me up. Like remember uh, Luka Doncic's draft year, and it's like, well, but he hasn't done it in the NCAA. It's like, yeah, but he's doing it against grown professional men in Europe. That's way better than doing it against like Wake Forest. So if he was a Wichita State player, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd think exactly. differently about Luka Doncic. Um, then he would have gone first overall. Uh, all right, we got to take a break. Uh, lots more coming up on the show. I did want to play something that uh, our guy Satyar Shah had to say about the Elias Pettersson contract negotiations and uh, maybe something to watch out for as we get closer to training camp here. That's coming up next here on Halford & Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Missing the Canucks? Subscribe to the Canucks Central Podcast and get alerts for breaking news episodes. Daily shows return in September. Welcome back. Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Randy Janda. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. As a reminder, we're doing what we learned an hour early today at 7.30. That's just an hour away. So get your what we learns in. Hashtag WWL, what you learned in the last 24 hours in sports. And we will read them at 7.30. And yes, that also means we will play the intro song at 7.30. So you have been warned. Uh, Before we get there, it is, you know, shout out again to JT Miller yesterday for giving us just a gift of content with the uh, uh, with the podcast interview he did on the Cam and Strick podcast. Thank you so much, JT. He You're might listening. not like us, but we like him. I don't know. I think, I think he's okay with me. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, I'm quite confident he does not know who I am, so I'm, I'm very, very much fine with that. Um, 
But it is the uh, it's a dry season. Let's put it that way for NHL news and Canucks news in particular. I did want to play uh, uh, just something that uh, our, our guy Satyar Shah passed along on the People Show with Vic yesterday, and it's not a big breaking news update about the Pedersen extension uh, or Pedersen negotiations on an extension between him and the Canucks. But I did think it brought up a couple of interesting points about what to watch for and the timing potentially on this and where this could be going. And uh, here's Sat on the Pedersen negotiations. I can't sit here and say with certainty uh, where the Canucks are at in terms of their negotiations with Elias Pedersen. It has been quiet, like it has been reported. My sense, however, would be that we saw a contract come in, and that was the Sebastian Ajo contract. Mm-hmm. And as much as Pedersen had a better year than Sebastian Ajo this past year, their overall point-per-game numbers are similar. Ajo got, what, $9.5 million? And and also one guy, uh, 9.75. 9.75. And one guy's having more playoff success. Yes. Now, you can easily make the case that Pedersen had a bigger platform yep. year, deserves more money, and all that yep. stuff, right? But I would imagine, especially with these camps waiting for precedence to get set and watching some of these contracts come in, that the Ajo one is probably where Vancouver's kind of looking at right now. Be like, hey, if we're going to look at what's happening in the market, comparable players, 9.75, that kind of looks like the range we're in. I don't think Pedersen's willing to do that, right? He obviously wants 10 plus million. So right now it's quiet, but do we see the Canucks up that offer next month? Because if you look at what happened with JT and even with Bo to some extent, like they also made a better offer to Bo. And as soon as they realized Bo wasn't playing ball with them, they completely pivoted and decided to give JT a bit more and, and they got the deal done with JT. So that's my kind of take here. Like, it's it's been quiet with the Canucks. I don't expect anything to happen with Pedersen. I don't expect any any big trades to happen this month. But do we see them up their offer a little bit? Because if we're talking about Aho money, I don't see Pedersen signing that. Mm-hmm. And again, that's seventy eight million dollars over eight years, uh, nine point seven five, and the timeline of when JT signed his deal, early September. So that's Sat and Bick uh, at the end there. And, you know, again, the Ajo comparison is interesting. We talked about that when he signed that deal. But I thought the point about the timing, and when you look at when Miller got done, and it was, you know, late summer, still a couple of weeks out of training camp, there had been, as Sat says, you know, a kind of position they'd taken, and then they change it, right? They say, okay, you know what? Let's make a push to get this done. Let's up our offer. And I think the thing with the Ajo deal is, and look, I think Pedersen is, is going to sign for more than what Sebastian Ajo got. But at least it gives you a baseline and a framework, and then you start building the case from there. You can say, okay, look, we know you're going to get more than him. How much more? Is it a million more? Is it a million and a half more? And you can kind of work from there a little bit. So I think Yahoo deal, even if Pedersen gets more, is an important framework. And it's the kind of thing where if the Canucks are really, really serious, if they put a high priority on getting this done before training camp, I think they can use that comparable as a springboard to kind of make a a really competitive, legit offer in the next three, four weeks here. Yeah, you're able to zoom in a bit, right? There might have been really no, I guess, you know, real focal point, if you want to say that. So Mm -hmm. it is setting a precedent to say, okay, at least this is the area code we're dealing with. In the past, maybe you didn't have that, or maybe the, the range was too large. Now, in terms of timing... The JT Miller deal, I remember being on air with Vic at that point. It came mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Yep. Nobody was reporting nope. anything. It was a, a Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford special, really. And very much so, you know, you'd expect the same thing here because, as we know, the organization doesn't talk very much uh, with this new regime. Nope. It, word does not get out. And from what I understand from agents as well, um, 
they don't like putting the word out there either because the regime does not like the fact that sometimes the word gets out there, right? So this is this is very much to the Jim Rutherford school of thought of going back to his days in Pittsburgh. So that's why you don't hear stuff coming out. Now, in terms of getting the deal done before the season, makes all the sense in the world for the Canucks. You don't want to get into a situation where you're having to negotiate in season. It's possible, but what do we hear from players? Don't really want to think about that right now. Yeah. And... The other thing is, from a value perspective, you probably want to lock in your prime, your, yep. your star player right now before maybe he launches off and has another great season. What if, if he goes, goes for 100 points again, goes for 110 points again, right? What kind of position does that put him in? And one of the, the lines of thought from the Canucks, and it's absolutely true, has been, look, this isn't a – we're not up against a deadline here, right? Because they have this season with Pedersen under contract – then he's an RFA the following year, right? So it's not as if it's he's going into uh, unrestricted free agency here. They have technically a couple of years left still with Pedersen under team control. That's absolutely right. But as you said, Randeep, if Pedersen's stance is, and we don't know this, but this is something a lot of players do. Sure. If his stance is, I don't want to negotiate during the season, well, all of a sudden, if you don't get an extension done before training camp, before the season, you're cutting that time in half, right? Then you are starting to look ahead to, okay, he's going to be an RFA, and we've seen how RFAs in the NHL now are capable of essentially picking their spot where they want to end up. RFAs of, of you know an elite caliber like Elias Pettersson. So I do think that creates, like, yes, you still have technically two years, but if you don't get it done before training camp here, it's going to start to feel like one year in a hurry, right? It's going to start to feel it, it, you're almost cutting that time in half right away. And nobody's saying that Elias Pettersson's going to pull a Matthew Kachuk. No, no, but, no, 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 no. But it does open that door potentially depending on how the season it just goes. Cre- it creates more uncertainty. For that's, sure it does. That's, of course it does. And right? it creates more noise. And something an organization has had a lot of the last couple of years, you probably want to limit that and just say, hey, look, mm-hmm. you're our guy. Let's do this. But it takes two parties to have that conversation. And if you're Elias Pettersson and his representation saying, no, we got another great year in us. Yep. Why, you know, why sign a deal now when you can do it maybe halfway through the season, maybe the end of next year where we have faith in our guy. He can put up 100 points. He can be a, a better two-way player. Uh, we feel he can grow. And if you look at the client list of J.P. Barry and Pat Persson, I urge you to do because, man, the commissions, impressive. These, the commissions these guys are making. It's pretty good. Man, I wish I had that bank account. But if you start looking at it, you know, the Anze Kopitars of the world, uh, David Pasternak, mm-hmm. Pierre-Luc Dubois, right? Another player, uh, Dylan Larkin, that these are guys that, sure, there's some value out there. Some guys have taken discounts. Uh, Jack Hughes is m- m- uh, the most notable one from the Pat Brisson, you know, stable, so to speak, where you can commit long term, you give your team value, but staying in that market is important. Winning a Stanley Cup with that team is important, and you build around a player like Jack Hughes. There's that example, and then there's other guys that also want to get theirs. It's entirely up to the player and how he feels in the situation. That's why, you know, if you're the Canucks, you're most definitely pushing to get this deal done in September, before the season starts. But this is a a player, a league that's getting a little bit more player leverage every single year. And I think it's I think we have to be honest too. It's an important year for the Canucks. Oh yeah. You have to you have to, you know, you've made some good moves, but if you're a player, you're probably want to think, all right, how do we do this year? What's the dynamic this year compared to last year? So there's a couple of things that are 
are up in the air right now that a player could be saying, hey, there's no rush. And I, I, and I do wonder, it's one thing to say, you know, the Canucks are going to make a big push to get it done before training camp. But that has limits, right? They're not, it's not going to be a blank check. It's not going to be, you know, a $15 million a year AAV here for Elias Pettersson. You're get, they're going to push, but they have to be smart still and, and, you know, rein it in at some point. So the question is, are they willing to go... Are they willing to push pre-training camp to to a spot where it will convince Elias Pettersson to, you know, to put pen to paper? And I do wonder if that becomes, like, we always work on the assumption of a max term deal for star players like this, especially at this age. And I think certainly that would be the Canucks' preference, and that's how they get the most, you know, total money. Uh, shout out to Satyar Shah, Mr. Total Money. Um, but I do wonder, if you are really motivated as the Canucks, to get this done. Do you consider going short-term, going shorter-term, right? Backing off of the, hey, we want a seven- or eight-year deal stance, and are you willing to talk about a three-, four-, five-year deal with Elias Pettersson? And normally, look, I if I was the Canucks, I'd be pushing for eight years. I do think there could be some advantages to going a little bit shorter. Could you get the AAV down slightly, right? And the other thing is, as you say, you just avoid the problem. And you could look at it in a negative sense and say you're kicking the can down the road, and that's probably fair. But this is a team that, you know, we talked about this earlier in the week. Like, this is a team that's kind of built to win now with JT Miller and Andre Kuzmenko over the next few seasons and Thatcher Demko. So how much do you value getting Elias Pettersson locked up, let's say, to match Quinn Hughes's term? Four years left, right? Getting those guys on the same schedule, maybe Elias Pettersson, you get a slight discount on the AAV, and then at least you have the cost certainty, and you can look at this kind of four-year window where you're trying to get something done. Elias Pettersson get hits free agency at 29. I do wonder if there's kind of a compromise there that could end up working, and if the Canucks are really motivated to just check this box and get an extension done before training camp if that's an avenue they go down. That that one kind of worries me a little bit, though, right? Ideally, and... It's not the ideal solution. No, no, ideally it it's the eight-year deal where mm-hmm. you're saying you're locking up your guy because yep. here's the thing, right? How many franchise centermen just really in the first round like there's some really good talent but outside of the top two or three you can't guarantee no, it's a guys, incredibly difficult yeah, to find a player top like two Elias or three Patterson. picks maybe you can get yeah. that but even that so yes the priority would be the eight-year deal anything beyond that or anything outside of that to me is is a disaster if you don't get it right and i understand in an age of player leverage um that's the reality go ask calgary go ask winnipeg that you know what's going on what happened with pierre-luc dubois go ask other teams now what they're they're starting to see in terms of players dictating where they want to yeah. play. I understand that. But, you know, in a worst-case scenario, yeah, you go shorter term. But this is Canada, man. Because Once you sign that deal, you're going to hear the clock ticking. Oh, yeah. You're, there's going to be noise. And that's a very, very unsettling place to be playing well, in Canada and signing that deal. Especially if they did, for example, match it up with Quinn Hughes' contract, right? And they're expiring at the, at the same time. Then you're feeling a ton of yes, pressure yeah. to, to convince both of those guys to hit up on their next deals. Look, I'm not saying it's ideal, but it comes down to what does Elias Pettersson want, as you said, and what what how much do they prioritize getting him to sign a deal versus getting the ideal deal right getting the perfect deal which would be eight years and I I just wonder like if Elias Pettersson is dead set on a shorter term deal at a certain point you might have to play ball with that as much as you don't like it I don't know if 
that is happening this September, though. Like, if, if that is the, the play here, if you're a player and saying, hey, a couple of years down the road, the cap's going to jump up, and mm-hmm. I don't want to tie myself into something that's going to limit my earning power. Or I want to see how this plays out in this market. You can, you can kick the can down the road halfway through the year or at the end of the year, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't know if you want to do that right now. I understand there's certain, you know, there's a certainty that comes with it to say you've locked them in for four years, but maybe you jump the gun. Yep. Maybe, maybe the situation gets better. We're always looking at it negatively, <laughs> but how about if the situation gets better and you're in a position where you're saying, man, we signed this guy a four-year deal when we could have signed we him to an eight. got an eight-year deal. It's a tricky situation, and uh, as Sad said, we'll see if anything happens, if the Canucks make a push here pre-training camp. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Uh, we're going to talk to Mike Morreale, Canadian Elite Basketball League Commissioner, coming up at 7. Before we get to that, a couple of other things uh, we wanted to touch on. Uh, the uh, the English Premier League season gets going tomorrow. Arsenal already has taken home the most important trophy in England in English soccer. Already, a everyone's ever, everyone always saying that that the Community Shield is is the number one trophy. Champions League, who cares? <laughs> um, how many Community Shields did Thierry Henry win? Uh, Arsenal has won seventeen in its history. So. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. It is. So some would say we're the most successful English club ever. No. Some would say that. Some would say that. Are you, where are you on Arsenal title chances? Because it does seem like, I mean, I know there's the one year that Liverpool got it done. They had an incredible team, but it has been Man City, just a clear tier above everyone other than Liverpool for a couple of years, for a long time now. Yeah, this is, in Man City, a couple of things. They got the deepest pockets. Mm-hmm. They've got the best manager. They've got depth across the board. I think from an Arsenal perspective, they are a better team. They've got more depth than they mm-hmm. had previously, right? This is something that when you look at the the signings that they end up picking up, uh, Declan Rice, I don't care how much they paid. He's a better player than they had previously. Yeah. Uh, there's no salary cap, so it doesn't really matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, Jurian Timber is a, a quality defender they picked up from Ajax. He's going to give them depth. You've got other players that are now, you know, Kai Havertz, a lot of money. I know in Chelsea fans are going to say he's he's no good. Um, I'm willing to give him a chance, especially when he came over from Leverkusen. He was a good player. Uh, but once again, for Arsenal, they have he's not going to be their main main piece. He's a, a really a depth option behind some of the players that they have playing in the midfield and up front. So from that perspective, they will make this very interesting for Man City. And this is a Man City team that in any given moment, they can change the game and sign somebody for 100 million pounds mm-hmm. like nothing. And it's not it's not even an issue for them. But they did lose some players. Riyad Mahrez, gone, right? Goes to Saudi Arabia. Pretty key player for them. Yep. When you talk about their unreal depth, he was a guy that would step up onto the pitch, score a couple of goals, and you know decide a game. He, he's got that match-winning quality. Um, I think Man City definitely still has the depth, but sometimes that turnover can... can It can take a couple of weeks coming into the season, and you have to kind of get used to it. It doesn't happen right away. So... Is that an opportunity for teams like Arsenal? And I'm going to throw um, Liverpool in that discussion as well. They picked up Alexi, uh, Alexis Mac McAllister and a few others. Um, Manchester United is going to have, based on what they were able to do last, uh, the second half of last year, they're going to think they can play for the title, right? Uh, whether that's true or not, we'll see. But I, I think early on in this season, we'll see. We'll see if Man City, there's a bit of a drop-off as they, they kind of try to develop their their new uh, squad, really. Yeah. 
But I, I think Arsenal is in a better position to compete this year with the with so the depth. Is Arsenal now? Because this is this always cracks me up with uh, you know we have so many United fans here at the station and you know United oh you're telling me this incredibly proud tradition of winning and being dominant like they're they're the Yankees essentially right they they are the the big bad the team that has been great for so long yada 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 and then they've fallen on hard times here and all of a sudden these United fans are getting excited for like a fourth place finish and it's like guys have some self respect you're Manchester United. You know what I mean? Like, you, you don't see the Yankees celebrating like, hey, we snuck into the playoffs and got eliminated. And all of a sudden, United's like, hey, all right, Champions League, we did it, guys. Like, it's this big achievement. What Like, are they are, are they going to be consigned to doing that again, or do they have legit title aspirations? Okay, if you ask some people at the station, they'd probably say, yes, they do. Okay. Most of those guys uh, live in the afternoon. And then, and then in four months, they'll be like, hey, we're, gonna, we're hanging on to a Champions League spot. Good for us. But there is a bit of a turnaround, though, right? Like, with any sort of, any sort of, I think, especially in soccer, when you have a manager that is larger than life, that has been there for 20-odd years, yep. um, it's never easy to turn that around. And Arsenal had their own version of Wenger. Mm-hmm. But Sir Alex Ferguson was a larger-than-life personality that he was Manchester United. And the the turnaround to replace him has not been an easy one. No. So, overall, I think what we saw from them last year was a a move in the right direction. They pick up Mason Mount. They pick up uh, a new keeper in Andre Anana, who really, David De Gea was terrible the last couple of years. <laughs> and they've picked up their own, you know, for them, they hope, a Danish superstar in Rasmus Hojlund uh, from At- Atalanta, which, you know, he's a good player. I don't know if he's Erling Holland good, but still, they're hoping for that. Um, but here's the thing. You have a lot of teams with deep pockets right now. And Arsenal's willing to spend, Man City's willing to spend, and the one we haven't talked about yet, Newcastle is starting to spend. Remember, they're backed by the Saudis. So until Manchester United ends up maybe being sold or, you know, are they really able to hit their, their ultimate ability, right? Right, right now they're, they're punching, like they're doing well. Yeah. They're a very rich club, but... I think most Manchester United fans are just waiting for the day that they're sold from the Glazer family who owns the Tampa Bay Buccaneers yes. to somebody probably in the UK or, or the Middle East. Yes. And that will take them to another stratosphere. Right. But right now, I, I think they're in the mix. They're definitely in the mix for a top four. I don't buy them as title contenders, though. Yeah, the, the Newcastle one is interesting, right? Because, I mean, we saw it with Chelsea once upon a time. We saw it with Manchester City, right, where you get that infusion of cash. And maybe it doesn't happen ne- the next season or the season after that, but eventually you break through and you become one of the elites of uh, uh, of English soccer. And they're, they're the next team that seems like that's uh, going to be on that list. Uh, is Harry Kane going to Bayern? What's the deal here? So Tottenham has ex- accepted a 100 100- Pound, 100 million pound offer from a uh, Bayern Munich right now. So Bayern Munich wants him. Mm-hmm. Tottenham has accepted the deal. Now all that remains is, does Harry Kane want to go to Bayern Munich? Does he want to go to Germany? And if he says no, if he says no, one of two things. He wants to go to an English club mm-hmm. or he's the biggest loser we've ever seen. <laughs> this man has no intention of ever winning a trophy because he ain't going to win it at Tottenham Hotspur. I can guarantee you that much. And that's not my Arsenal showing. <laughs> that, come on bit. now. They no, haven't won right. anything, Jamie. <laughs> this is a fan base that gets proud of preseason trophies. And I'm not even talking Wait, about the... what? Com- not even talking... You, you won the Community 
Shield. Community Shield is a legit trophy. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm talking about like preseason tournaments. I see. I see. All right. But it is an interesting kind of dynamic because previously it was, will he go to Manchester United? Yeah. Is there maybe another club that could come from, uh, would it be a, a Chelsea type? That didn't pan out. Bayern Munich has, every year they have a chance of winning the Champions League. Yep. He says no to that. And they have more than, more than a chance of winning uh, the Bundesliga. Oh, too. yeah. <laughs> like 10 straight at they, this point? They won last year, but it was so close that they still fired their manager. <laughs> They're like, this is too close to call you on. Get out of here. Now, that's a standard of excellence right there. When that's, you, that's, that's what Manchester United should be That's what Harry Kane to. needs in his life. That's Higher standards. Exactly a standard of excellence. All right. As mentioned, he is the commissioner of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. They have an exciting weekend coming up here uh, in the market at the LEC. We'll talk to Mike Morreale about that next here on Halford & Bruff Sportsnet 650.